I dropped out of school, I'd had to leave jobs, I didn't seem to just be able to deal with the 40 hour work week, then you think that that must be a personal flaw, right? Because you're like, well, everyone else around me is able to do it and I can't do it. So I must be, a, you know, lazy, I must be broken, I must be a bad person because I struggle to maintain friendships and all of that stuff. Whereas just having that description or that explanation of why that happens for you, it's like, oh no, it was never me, it was just, I'm just different. I just didn't have the information about myself, didn't have the support that I needed. On today's episode, I speak to Ellie Middleton, who is an autistic and ADHD creator and the founder of the Unmasked community. Ellie and I talk about neurodivergence, about finding space and making space for yourself in a world that isn't built for you, and how we can all tap into the power of community to feel less alone and to understand what the path forward could look like. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's amazing to be here. So to get started, we don't like to define people, so I'm going to let you define yourself, introduce yourself, how you want people to know you. My name is Ellie Middleton, and I'm an autistic and ADHD content creator, speaker, and writer. Um, so I got diagnosed over the last 18 months with both autism and ADHD and started speaking about my experiences online. I think it was more out of shock of not understanding how I could come to this realization, realization so late in life um, and knowing that there must be so many other people out there who are waiting to find their answers as well. So yeah, I started talking about it online and all kind of spiraled from there, I guess. <laughs> it's so like just right off the bat, it's really interesting that you use the phrase come to the realization because in my mind, it's like, it's so interesting that you didn't get a diagnosis until that point, but you take the, like, the onus on yourself a little bit. You're like, how did I not realize that this is what was happening? Yeah, I think it's Obviously, it's a lot down to the system of no one no one realised for you. If you don't have that information, you can't find it. But I think the reality is that a lot of people have to come to that realisation themselves in order to advocate for themselves now in order to get a diagnosis. Because if someone hasn't noticed it for you in the first 24 years of my life, in my case, then they're probably not going to realise now. So a lot of the time, yeah, I think it is that's like the order of the way it goes. Someone comes to that realization themselves and then they maybe go on to self-diagnose and then maybe if they're, if they have the privilege, they can get a medical diagnosis as well. But it generally is a lot, I guess, on the person now. What was your journey to diagnosis like? Yeah, so I have always in the past been diagnosed with like anxiety, depression, the more mental health side of things. Um, and I kind of was in a bit of a cycle, I guess, where I'd have six months of being like fine, very happy, bubbly, energetic, ambitious. And then every six months or so, I would go through a really low phase of being really anxious, overwhelmed, tearful, not wanting to leave the house. Um, I dropped out of school, I'd left jobs. Um, and that kind of was a bit of a cycle. So I guess I had the realization myself that maybe anxiety wasn't what was going on for me. It was more like the side effect of whatever else was going on. Because when I was fine, I wasn't very anxious. It was just when I came to these like low points. Um, so I guess, yeah, just kind of in myself knew that that something else must be going on. Um, and then just did a lot of like searching, I guess. And I think at first I had a bit of a phase where I thought that it was maybe like BPD or bipolar, because that's all I'd really seen like in the media, in the press, that might explain why a woman went from being really high to really low, that it was like more the mental health side of things. So I had a, a few months where I was convinced that was what was going on, trying to talk to the doctors going, I think this is what I've got, I need to go for an assessment for BPD. And they were like, no, it doesn't sound like you. Um, and then I guess just out of luck, really, I was having counselling at the time and brought something up in counselling about a bit of a bicker that I'd had with my ex-partner. And the counsellor just said, has it ever been looked into why you take things so literally? Um, so I was like, no, it hasn't, but I think I know what you're hinting at here. So from that, just kind of went away and Googled Instagram, TikTok, just whatever information I could get my hands on. And I was like, yeah, I, I really think this is what's going on for me. Um, and it turned out that the counsellor, her son was both autistic and ADHD. So I guess she kind of was in a good position to be able to notice those things in me that maybe nobody else had noticed before. Um, and yeah, from there, I got my ADHD diagnosis first. I think that one felt more urgent for me because there was more of a physical outcome of I could get the medication. So that felt like a, I was in quite a low point at the time. So that felt of like a, a more of a tangible thing that was a reason to go for that one first. Um, and I got that in October, 2021. And then I guess 
through that and through kind of learning myself better and even from taking the medication to kind of quieten down the ADHD a bit, it became a lot more apparent that, yeah, I think autism, <laughs> autism was going on in there as well. Um, so I got that diagnosis in April last year, so just over a year ago. Um, so I guess a lot of it was down to luck of just being in the right place at the right time with that counsellor and bringing up the right topics. It's not really something that I would have brought up. Usually it was kind of just a small thing that was on my mind and, and it all came from there. And then a hell of a lot of research and advocating and all of that stuff afterwards and a lot of privilege, I guess, as well to be able to access a diagnosis. Um, but yeah, it's still, it's, it's, I feel very, um, grateful and it's like, it's, entirely possible that that I could have never got diagnosed I could have gone my whole life and I'd never be doing any of this work or know that about myself which is wild right Mm, yeah such a fundamental part of how you exist in the world and who you are and how your brain functions and if you hadn't mentioned that one argument yeah it could all be different and I've had had a different counselor who didn't have any experience or just yeah it's so it's so so strange to think about but very grateful (laughs) and you mentioned gender in that as well where you didn't see many women who are autistic who or you you reference it in terms of bpd where that's where you saw the portrayal and gender obviously plays a big part in also autism diagnosis um what have you learned since you were diagnosed yeah so i guess even now to this day people still think that um autism and adhd are like predominantly male conditions um, but more and more research is showing that that's not the case um, basically all of the research that was initially done on these conditions on these neurodivergences was focused on young white middle-class boys and um, those were the people that were I guess taken to the psychiatrist because they were the ones that were maybe destructive to their parents and their parents had the privilege of having the money to take them to the psychiatrist and all of that stuff so that was kind of what the initial research had been done on um, which then meant that all of the diagnostic criteria is based on the research done on that group of people so I guess it's kind of like a self-fulfilling thing of people think it's that group so then the diagnostic criteria designed around the experiences of that group so then only that group carry on getting diagnosed so then people think that it's just that group and so I guess yeah more and more recently um more more women and more people marginalized for their genders have have started to get diagnosed but it's still quite tricky I think because again the diagnostic criteria doesn't doesn't kind of account for their experiences um but yeah studies are studies are starting to show that um there's kind of no difference in in gender and autism rates or adhd rates um but that's just a lot of a lot of women and people marginalized for their gender and i guess just anyone that isn't a a white man a cis white man basically it's it's much harder for them to get diagnosed and um, people of color have a tricky time like trans people and people marginalized by their gender have a tricky time women obviously have a tricky time so i think there's a big wave at the moment as the internet's kind of allowed more people to share their experiences and see other people that look like them and behave like them that are also autistic or adhd um, and then gone on to kind of look into that themselves i think yeah more and more people are starting to kind of get those diagnoses that they should have had the whole time but just never never got picked up right and when you you're obviously someone who is a, a face for a lot of people who are navigating the space right now right like people who are you two years ago are looking up on TikTok, looking up on LinkedIn and finding your story and your work. But when you were in their shoes two years ago or a year and a half ago, and you were trying to make sense of, is this, is this what's happening? Is this actually a diagnosis for me? Did you know people, did you know women? Did you know people who had ADHD, who are autistic, who you could turn to and say, okay, I see myself in in your experience or how you navigate the world and like oh right this is it yeah definitely not in real life or in the media or anything like that I think again it was a lot of online creators I think I think some of the things when you see them in black and white on like the NHS website for example you might think "Hmm, like kind of sounds like me but like I'm not 100% sure for example um special interests is something that autistic people have it's basically a really keen passion that you like dedicate a lot of time to and you're really intensely interested in this thing and the question in the like autism quotient which is like the screening test for autism is I like to collect information about categories of things for example birds trains planes and cars and it's like well no I don't collect information about those things but that's probably because I'm a 25 year old woman not a seven year old boy and but if I'd have just seen that question alone especially because 
autistic people are literal thinkers, mm-hmm. I would have maybe gone, oh no, I don't collect informa- information about those things. So, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not autistic. But then seeing a video of another, someone similar age to me or someone that's a woman or someone that has had similar life experience to me or anything that's kind of more, more similar to me than, than the way that the diagnostic criteria are written them talking about their own experiences of being like, oh my God, I, you know, love this same artist. I love Taylor Swift, for example. I listen to all of Taylor Swift's albums and I know all the names of the songs and I know everything about her life. I know where she went to school, that kind of thing. And I'm like, oh, I do that with like different artists that I like. I get really obsessed with bands and I go to their gigs over and over again and I listen to the albums over and over again. So that's that's the same trait. That's the same trait of a special interest. It's just obviously for different types of people, it's gonna show up in different types of ways. So I think, having someone that's got similar life experience to you in other ways as well as being autistic is is a really good way to translate those experiences in black and white into how they show up in real humans I guess that's so tangible and relatable in a way that I've never seen on any like government website ever it just makes so much more sense yeah I think as well there's like kind of a thing around um, because of the way that women and people marginalized for their gender are socialized, it's more likely that our special interests are gonna be something that is more, I guess, socially acceptable, like with the boys and they're playing with the trains and you know, just yeah. the way that we're socialized from being young kids, it's more likely that they're gonna cling onto those interests. Whereas if the girls are, I don't know, maybe the horsey girl at school that loved her horses and she was doing horse shows every day and all of this stuff and you know, that could be a special interest, but it's just not seen that way because it's not in that traditional like way that it's been described in the past, I guess. I read something that you wrote, which was so beautiful about how when you got your diagnosis, you realized that you were a Mac in a PC world, which just made so much sense of like, it's not I'm damaged, it's I have a disability and I'm a Mac in a PC world, which there is no better way of saying that. And was it I'm curious about like when you got your diagnoses, was there a moment of like what, what was going through your mind? I think the main thing is like validation and just like elation of like, oh my God, it all makes sense now. Like, yeah, I think the, the, the biggest feeling is like, yeah, that like relief, validation, understanding and um, piecing everything together and kind of, I think it gives you the opportunity to forgive yourself. Cause I think in the past, you know, everything, if, if everyone else, or if as far as everyone else is concerned, you're fine, you're normal, you're, there's nothing different about you, but you just can't do things in the same way that other people can. You can't make friends in the same way other people can. You can't work in the same way that other people can. Like I dropped out of school, I'd had to leave jobs. I didn't seem to just be able to deal with the 40 hour work week. Then you think that that must be a personal flaw, right? Cause you're like, well, everyone else around me is able to do it and I can't do it. So I must be, a, you know, lazy. I must be broken. I must be a bad person cause I struggle to maintain friendships and all of that stuff. Whereas just having that description or that explanation of why that happens for you, it's like, oh no, it was never me. It was just, I'm just different. I just didn't have the information about myself. I didn't have the support that I needed. I didn't know what was going on for me. So I think it's it, that's the main feeling. Um, but then I think it also comes with maybe over time more as well, a lot of grief, a lot of what ifs, you know, for example, dropping out of school. Well, I didn't get to go to uni, which I really wanted to do at the time because I didn't have the support that I needed. And, you know, if they'd have known that, would I have got more support and, you know, spent all this time having a really rough ride socially at school. And maybe that wouldn't have happened if I'd have known more about myself. So I think, I think it's a whole whirlwind of emotions. And I think it's really ongoing as well. I think, um, I think at the start as well, um, I kind of thought like, oh, this is it. Like I'm unmasked now. I know about myself. Like I've got all the answers. I'm like, you know, everything's up from here. Um, Whereas when time goes on, it's kind of like, yeah, I guess it's hard to come to terms with the fact that you can't do things in the same way that other people can and things are going to get harder because you have masked your way through things and, you know, you have had a trickier time than you maybe should have done because you didn't have the support that you needed. But yeah, for me, I still think that the number one top of the list was was just gratitude, validation, understanding, happiness to have an answer. Um, but I think it's important to mention that it's not it's not just a magic wand as well and there, there is a bit of kind of trickiness and grief that comes with it as well but I think that's similar with all things right I think it's it's a whole kind of array of emotions that come with the big realization and you have to keep living in our broken world so yeah that doesn't go away unfortunately as well 
Um, you used the word masked there and unmasked. And for people who aren't familiar, do you want to just explain the concept of masking? Yeah, so masking is something that um, it's predominantly a word used in the autistic community, but I guess other neurodivergences have adopted it because it's kind of similar. Um, but masking is something that you do to kind of consciously or unconsciously cover up your autistic traits and appear more neurotypical, which is like non-autistic, non-ADHD, no neurodivergences. Um, so things as simple as like forcing eye contact because you've been told that's a polite thing to do. Um, you know, suppressing stims, which is like, like me, I've always kind of got this now. I'm always moving my hands. I'm always picking my nails and stuff like that, but maybe not doing that because you're told, you know, not to. So you kind of learn it's not the right thing to do. Um, maybe forcing different small talk conversations, like learning scripts of how to make small talk because you've told you have to do that to be polite, even though it doesn't come naturally to you. Um, so I guess it's kind of a whole array of things, but just kind of suppressing and covering up your true autistic self to, to present to the world in a more neurotypical way. Um, and I think that's another thing as well that I am still learning just how much that's going to go on for. I think like, for example, now when I come down to London on the train, I think every time I do that, it gets trickier. I think before I, you know, before lockdown, I was traveling the world. I lived in Cambodia for a while, like traveling. I did not, I was not aware that traveling was hard for me because I didn't, I would never been given a reason to why it would be stressful for me or why it would be hard for me. So I would just kind of force my way through it without really realizing. And then maybe a couple of days later, I'd have a big panic attack or I'd be really tearful. And I might just think, oh, I must be homesick. I must just be tired. I might not really know what was going on there. Whereas now I have that awareness now I can I can feel in real time that it is tricky for me and it's like that's kind of an ongoing thing of like things that you never really questioned your ability to do in the past because you you didn't know otherwise um suddenly getting getting more and more tricky over time as you have that awareness but I think it's just kind of important to remember that the more that I'm unmasking, like the closer I'm getting to being the true Ellie, which is a nice thing, even if it means kind of having to give up a few things along the way. Have you found also that as you unmask more in the world around you and in how you exist, you're finding more people who are either like autistic, have ADHD, or just have people in their lives also who are experiencing the world like you are and can are coming to you and saying oh yeah I you know my sister or whoever yeah I think I think it's an such a massive conversation at the moment I think obviously it comes up for me a lot because it's my work it's my life um but everywhere I go it's always oh my, my sister my mom my cousin everybody seems to know somebody that's you know either kind of considering it or going through the diagnostic process or has recently been diagnosed it does seem to be um a huge wave at the moment of people who now are getting this access to information that's allowing them to have this realization. Um, but I think as well, the more that you unmask, the more that you're able to make those genuine connections. Cause I think it's kind of um, like ironic almost that the reason that people mask is obviously like, first of all, to keep themselves safe, but also because it's like, I thought that that was the person that people wanted me to be. So I thought if I acted in the same way that they did, then they would like me. And I thought that if I used the same jokes that they did, then they'd find me funny. And that, that kind of, the intention was to make people like me, but people are always going to be able to tell if, if you're faking it or if you're not being genuine. Um, so actually the thing that I was doing to try and make people like me more didn't, didn't really help. Maybe made them like me less. Whereas now if I'm showing up, more as my true self then you're kind of there yeah you're there more open to to making connections with people to making real friendships and and stuff like that and I think that's a huge thing especially for late diagnosed people is finding those like genuine friendships where you show up as yourself I think that's a lot of kind of the reason why I started Unmasked is I think that's a huge part of unmasking learning how to have how to have a real friendship as you, who you really are, rather than who you think you need to be to fit into that friendship group. It sounds a little bit like recognizing all the scripts that like you were just like learning the lines, yeah. right? And suddenly being like, oh, I maybe don't need to learn these lines and I can just like try seeing what I want to say. Yeah, definitely. I think my ex-partner used to, before we kind of knew that I was autistic, um, he used to like tease me, like nicely joke, but every time... I would go to like his family home. His mum would be like, oh, hi, are you okay? And I'd always, no matter the day, no matter what, I'd always go, yeah, good, thanks, how are you? 
And it was like just the robot answer that I was told was the right answer to give. And he'd be like, you know, you can, you can say something different, but every single time it was, yeah, good, thanks, how are you? Good, thanks, how are you? Um, and it, it was literally just what I'd been told was the right thing to say when someone said hello to you. So yeah, it's kind of um, funny looking back, but I think it it's something that everyone does to a certain level. Right? So you don't really realize that, that you're so unusual in doing it. It's just the extent to which you're doing it, I think, um, of really, considering each word and each interaction and each way that you behave and each body movement and kind of just censoring the way that you're being um, in order to be more palatable, I guess. And it seems like hopefully the shift, and this is part of why I wanted to talk to you in this space, was the shift in going from how do I fit into the world to how do I make a world that works for me? Yeah. Which is such a like big, daunting, terrifying, impossible thing in some ways. And for you was like creating Unmasked part of that where it was like, let me take one small, not small, but like one manageable space and try and make it work. Yeah, I think so. I think the main thing was because it's such a a topic that people maybe haven't had the chance to talk about that much. Maybe it's been kind of closed conversations before and it's been something that you wouldn't speak out about and you'd be kind of scared to show your differences in case you were judged or ostracized and all of this stuff and the fact that a lot of people are just coming to that realization now um meant that when i was kind of putting myself out there as my audience started to grow so many people were coming to me to be like oh i resonate so strongly can i just ask you about this like it's so nice to see someone with the same experiences which was so so lovely because it was also new to me but also, I can't be that person to all of those people. Um, so I guess it was like, what I can do is I can put all of those people in a room together and then they can find their their one friend or their, their group of friends within that place um, rather than it being, I guess, like a one-way stream of, of everything coming into to me, um, just kind of putting everyone in a room together, I think was the main, the main reason behind it. But yeah, I think it's really nice that we're able to kind of be a case study in how things can be done. Um, like for example when we've had our events I think events are something that no one's ever really considered if those things are inclusive to to neurodivergent folks whereas that's obviously at the center of what we're doing so we can put all of those things in place to make sure it is we can go to the space beforehand and take a video so people know what to expect we can give people stickers that say if they want to be hugged or high-fived or not touched we can you know give people a stim toy so that they feel comfortable all of those things that are so simple that that nobody has ever really considered before because it's not being at the front of their experience um and say like actually look we've done this it's been great for all these people and hopefully encourage the rest of the world to pick up those small things as well um but yeah i think i think it's um a fine balance when you're in kind of this this space of like advocacy and inclusion of like you want to fix the whole world but you can't and it's never one person's job to break down those barriers so i think often it is the best place to start is is in yet take that one piece of the world that you can make right um, and then hope that the world learns from that piece I guess and it's what you're describing is also so much of the like icky conversation sometimes turns into like well it's really difficult to be inclusive right and everything you're describing is not difficult at all it's it's just being mindful. Yeah, I think that's a, a lot of what I talk about when I go in to speak to employers and stuff like that is, I think like you say, everyone thinks, oh my God, we're gonna have to rewrite all the policies. We're gonna have to buy all this expensive equipment. We're gonna have to redesign the office. And it's like, most of the stuff that I need as an accommodation is just like, communicate clearly with me. Like tell me things in advance and um, give me a quiet space to go to if things get overwhelmed. Like they're so simple, free, and like you say, just rooted in, considering other people and kindness um that people are often like oh yeah that's that's so straightforward but it's just that no one's kind of maybe informed them before or no one in the leadership team has that experience themselves to be able to to put it forward so yeah i think i think people underestimate just how easy it is to accommodate people just having the knowledge of what it is that needs to be done was that for you like a, a primary driver when you started your activism and your advocacy? Like, How did you end up in that space? Because there's obviously, there's a certain type of person, right? Where you say, okay, like I think actually we can make this bigger than a safe space for us, but we can start expanding outward and looking at how to. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's hard to know 
how it, I feel like to me, it kind of all just happened. Like I think my platform just grew and grew and grew. I think a lot of it comes from the fact that LinkedIn is my biggest platform. And that just comes from the fact that that's the work I was doing beforehand. I used to work in marketing and I was working for an agency that wrote LinkedIn content for other people. So that was kind of me trying to get good at using LinkedIn, I guess, because that was my job. Um, and then it, it just kind of started, I guess, on LinkedIn with one viral post and then has grown and grown and grown since that. So I think I've been really lucky that that's where my audience has been because you're in front of a whole load of decision makers. So I think it just started at the start with just one person being like, oh, would you come and talk to our company about inclusion? And I was like, yeah, okay, I can do that. Um, and then it's just gone on and on from there. So I think it was just just almost getting caught up in it um but i'm obviously so grateful for that um but i think that's something that i've had to like consciously like notice recently as well because i love that i've had the opportunity to do that with employers and stuff but then i also kind of came to the realization that like i don't work in a workplace anymore like i'm not a workplace expert most of the jobs that i'd had pre-diagnosis i left within a year like i don't have a lot of I've just kind of accidentally become a workplace expert because my advocacy happened to be on a platform that was full of workplaces. Um, so I think kind of, I've had to find that balance of like, this is great work, but it's maybe not as aligned with with what I want to do, which I think I get a lot more fulfillment from the community-based stuff mm -hmm. as well, as well as being like the one on the outside, kind of fighting the fight. I think I like to, to be in the community and what's best for those people as well. So yeah, I think it's, um, it's a fine line for me at the moment of being like, okay, I want to, I want to do all that stuff. And also as well, like in a way that is authentic to me as an autistic person, like I can't be a good advocate for looking after yourself and working in a way that works for you and taking care of yourself. If I'm constantly burning myself out by going to talk to employers and traveling for work and doing stuff every day and all of that stuff, like I've got to, I've got to walk the walk as well as talking the talk. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I, I think I guess it comes with being autistic as well that I have a really strong sense of justice. So it's like, no, like this needs to be fixed. Like someone's got to do it. So, um, but I think it's, I think I'm slowly learning over time that, um, yeah, I've got to do it in a way that, and by doing that, by doing it in a way that's authentic for me, I'm also actually helping the community because I'm not like, I'm not going to, to companies and being like, yeah, I'm autistic, but then masking and being this kind of super capable superwoman i'm also saying okay look i can come but i'm gonna just be there for the hour talk i'm not gonna network beforehand and afterwards i'm gonna have to go to a quiet space like i might have to wear my ear defenders if things get too much like no sorry i can't do it this month because i've already got too much on and that's kind of authentically making them be inclusive to me which then teaches them how to be inclusive to other people um so yeah i think it's a it's an ongoing journey i think but i'm very very grateful to get to do the work that i do do you need to so i wanted to go back to what you said about feeling rooted in the community you've created and in community which i think is so true for so many of the people we talk to whatever identities, disabilities, ways of existing in the world that people are trying to make sense of, like, how do we make things better? And then the next question I always ask is, it can sometimes feel so scary to, like, take that first step into community building or engaging, right? It's, it's I want to say easier, but I, I don't like that word, but it's easier to, like, watch the video on TikTok, right? It's easier to, like, read your post on LinkedIn and feel seen by it, like, feel deeply seen and then be like, okay, cool. And there's, there's always that next step of like, okay, I'm going to reach out to this person. And you know what? I'm going to reach out to five other people. And I want to hear about what your journey into that was like. Was it difficult for you? Was that something you were naturally inclined toward doing? Um, I think it's always a scary thing because it's, again, that fear of judgment, that fear of being kind of rejected, um, which is especially apparent for somebody that's grown up undiagnosed and, and not really had a good time with friendships. Um, but I think on the other side of that, it was just this, like you don't realize what you're missing until you've had it. Like I think, like obviously I knew that I had a really tough time, especially through high school with friendships. Um, but then when I made my first kind of autistic friends, I was like, awesome this is what it's like to belong like this is what it's like to actually get on with people and be understood and um you know not have to explain myself and be able to just be me um 
so I think that kind of overshone the nervousness because just from those even very first like online interactions it was just like ah okay this is what it feels like um but I think like especially so in like the unmasked community we have a discord channel um and I think a lot of people do kind of make that first step and they join and then they maybe just are silent lurkers for a while because they're not quite ready to put themselves out there just yet but even just being in that space I think is is one step along joining the community right and being involved in the conversation and making those connections um so I think I think that's a really kind of a nice thing to see and to see over time people coming out of their shells more and stuff and and like we've started running some in real life events and stuff and that's been so nice as well because I think there's this this idea that oh you know autistic people are really awkward like no one can make small talk like no one's gonna like we're, we're even panicking as neurodivergent folks ourselves thinking is this gonna be really awkward is anyone gonna talk to each other like is this gonna be really bad and then you go and you see people communicating in their ways right maybe they're not making the stereotypical small talk conversations about the weather maybe they're talking about their deepest passions and all of this stuff but they're making friends they're talking to people they're belonging they're you know laughing they're having a good time and I think that's one of the biggest like it it makes me a bit like emotional when I see it because I'm like oh, we made this space for all of these people that have been or been made to feel like black sheep their whole lives or aliens their whole lives and now they're in a space where everyone in the room's an alien so they can kind of connect to that community so yeah I think I think it's always scary to put yourself out there um I think for me as well like it's all happened so so quickly like literally it's 18 months since I got my ADHD diagnosis um so it's quite scary to there's a lot to learn I think there's so much to learn in terms of like all types of um inclusion as well like I think maybe as somebody that that didn't really come from a space of knowing that I was like multiply marginalized I maybe wasn't as involved in the conversation and other things as I should have been so I think I've learned a lot more um about kind of the trans conversation because a lot of the community are also kind of gender non-conforming or trans I've learned maybe a lot more about the race conversation because I'm having to having to advocate for those people that have got even kind of less of the privilege that I've got you know yes I'm a woman which made it harder to get diagnosis but I'm still a white woman and I still was able to get a private diagnosis for my ADHD because of that privilege like I think it's I think once you enter like one advocacy space you like by nature have to enter all of them like you can't advocate for one marginalized group without realizing that you know we have to fight for everybody and we have to raise the voices of people um who maybe can't and I think especially within the autistic community something that's really hard is obviously autism is a spectrum condition it's such a such a varied spectrum and people have such varying support needs and support needs that change over time as well um so for me I have quite low, low support needs generally um so it's easier for me to advocate for myself because I'm not having to juggle all of that other stuff. Whereas somebody might have um, might have learning disabilities as well. They might have they might be non-verbal or non-speaking. They might have higher support needs, and that that takes away from their ability and their energy and their capability to be able to advocate for themselves as as easily as I can. So it's like on us to kind of advocate for the whole community as well. Um, and I think that's kind of something that's that's extra tricky but also like extra special because it's like such a such a varied community of people um but yeah I think I think community is it wouldn't be worth doing it without people around you it would be I don't think you'd be able to to fight the fight without those people to support you and those people to fight with you um so it's it's definitely a, a huge huge part of what I do and what you're touching on is also like nobody is just one thing right yeah and identity is so like multi-layered and complicated and there are probably going to be weeks and months where you don't have the the ability or the bandwidth um to be the person at the, like the helm of the fight and then everyone else gets to step up a little bit and yeah it only works if we all step up co- consistently yeah definitely and i think something as well that i'm like was kind of a tricky realization to come to was um the more that i unmask the less the less palatable I become and maybe the less impact I'm able to have or success in my work I'm able to have I think for it's not that's not right but it's true and I think you know now I'm quite palatable for companies because 
from the outside, I look quite normal and I can kind of explain right. myself and I can mask really well and, you know, put on a, a good talk for them and all of that stuff. Um, so that's that's quite easy for them to, to listen to me because it's it's close to what they're used to, I guess. And I guess the more that, that I unmask, the more some of those layers peel away and, you know, I might be up on stage talking in a more monotonous way because that's how I naturally communicate. I might have my ear defenders on, I might be stimming, I might not be able to look at people in the eye and that's that's going to take away from the the way that people listen to me, I guess, because yeah. it's, you know, something that's further out of their comfort zone um, and that's obviously, that's not right, but I think it's true and I think it's something that I had to kind of think of kind of similar to what I said earlier of like, well, I'm, I'm only authentically doing my job if I'm doing it authentically as me, as an autistic person. Um, but I think it's, that's a, that's a tricky one to kind of, to, to come to terms with of like the, the benefits of being more myself. And I think that's true for everyone in the world, not just in kind of my work as well. Like the, the more that I unmask, people mask for safety as yeah. well as for, you know, as an, as a natural response, I guess. Um, so it puts you in a more vulnerable position, but it's also best for you because it's better for your mental health because you're not masking your being yourself, but it's also kind of comes with with risks as well, um, which is, I think, a tricky thing to get your head around. Have you had to, like, think... I'm, I'm drawing parallels in other spaces, which are obviously very different, but I think there are parallels when you think about with sexuality and, like, coming out and the spaces you decide to yeah. come out in or not, or when you think about other marginalized identities and, like, passing, right? Yeah. Like, how you navigate, how, like, palatable, in air quotes, to use your word, you want to be to to the everyone else that you don't belong to. And how, like, how have you... Are you thinking intentionally about... I want to unmask, I want to be authentically myself and also I want to have an impact or I want to have a seat at the table in this room and once I'm in the room I'll be Ellie and well I'm there so they'll deal with it. Like how do, how are you navigating that? Yeah I think it's I think it's still it's still something that I don't think I'm consciously um trying to be like more like palatable. I think it's actually a really conscious decision to unmask. I think if you think that I spent 24 years always naturally going into this character of like bright and bubbly and all of this stuff that people like from you, I have to consciously go, no, we're not, that's not, we're not doing that. Even on, um, I think I also don't realize how often I do it as well. I think I'm becoming more and more aware, um, but it is still like a, a natural response. It's, it's what I've always done. So it's what, it's what I will continue to do. Um, on Saturday when I was doing a talk, my mum had come to see it. Um, and she said afterwards, she was like, it's wild how you walk into that room and you just, it's like a, it is literally yeah. like a character. Like it was the green room before. And I was like, oh, it's so nice to meet you. Like, it's so nice to be here. Like how is like just so I guess overly friendly, mm -hmm. like almost like playing this character. Um, and obviously my mum is someone that maybe doesn't see that often because when I'm at home, that's a safe place. When I'm around my family, that's people who I can be myself around. Um, and I think for me, that was a bit of an eye opener of like, oh yeah, I do I do still do that a lot. Yeah. Like I, I am still doing it. And it's not like I sit there and I think, right, come on Ellie, like we're gonna be really jolly today. It's just a natural response to being in that space. Um, but I think that's, that's the trickiest thing for a lot of people when they're trying to unmask of like, it's, you don't know how to be any other way that's the person that you've right. always been um, and also like learning like who is the person underneath like I think it's so easy to revert back to like masked Ellie because because it was a character it's so much more defined right mm. it was like I know that she likes these things and she likes going out with her friends on a weekend and she likes wearing I don't know her hair and makeup and dresses and stuff and it was like a list of rules of who this person was whereas real humans we're not that defined mm. where our, our, our lights change our needs change um our personalities change and that's that's harder to be it's easier to revert to the list of rules i guess um but i think yeah i think it's a a tricky one and it's going to be an ongoing journey i think for me i think i know that um that it will always change and it'll change depending on who I'm with and the situations that I'm in and the work that I'm doing and my energy levels and how well I am and my support needs and a whole host of other stuff. But um, I think I'm 
I think especially over the last like couple of months, there's been there's been a big change in in the levels of masking that I'm doing. I think um, at the start, I thought that I was I thought that I was a lot more unmasked than I was, and I was like, oh yeah, you know, I'm being myself now, like it's all fine. And then it, it was like, oh no, there's actually there's actually a lot more layers to this, um, but getting there. <laughs> And I, I imagine it's also like the rules exist at work, but they exist everywhere, right? Like like you were saying, they exist in friendship, they exist in relationships where there's a like certain persona that you can inhabit and you, you basically know like that this is where the lines are drawn. And it's hard to start to rewrite all the rules and be like, okay, who who am I actually and what actually works for me? And does do the people on the other side get it? Are they doing the, the same kind of work? Are they willing to like have this conversation with me and like be real with me yeah yeah I definitely think it's um it's a really strange one to navigate and like um there's kind of like a a joke in the autistic community where it's like oh someone's like oh you have such a lovely personality and it's like thanks I designed it just for you like I think I was so bad in the past at mimicking whoever I was spending the most time with even in terms of like phrases like I if someone has like a word that they use I will pick it up and I will use it all the time even my accent is kind of a whole host of different ones because it's a bit of Yorkshire where I'm from, a bit of the school that I went to, a bit of where I'm living now. Um, and I think, yeah, it's like you say, it's so much easier to pick those other bits up and that's like a some armour, that's like a shield, right, of knowing that, oh, well, they do that, so it must be fine if I do that too. Um, whereas like being yourself, I think, is is a lot more rewarding but a lot more vulnerable. Was there a turning point for you when you were like, okay, I think I'm ready to like start being myself I think more came from like continuing to burn out of like I can't Mm. I can't keep doing this anymore because it's it's not going well for me I think like I said at the start um I was kind of in that before diagnosis I was in like a six-month cycle of like six months of good crash and burn six months of good crash and burn um and I think since I got my diagnosis life has been so amazing but hectic that that hadn't really got out of that cycle either because although I had the awareness to, to stop that cycle because I knew that I had lower lower energy levels. I knew that, you know, I was prone to getting burnt out. I knew that I had sensory difficulties and all of that stuff. Um, I, I wasn't allowing myself to live that way because life was so exciting and I wanted to do everything and I wanted to meet everyone and I wanted to, to do everything. Um, and I was still crashing and burning so it was kind of like you know what's what's the point it's of, not working of, yeah, yeah it's not I'm not I'm not doing it I'm not I'm not making life any better for myself if I'm continuing to crash and burn so I think it was like a, a long hard like sit down with myself of Ellie come on now it's time to it's time to take better care of ourselves so yeah I think um I think it came from like like self-preservation I guess of like if I want to to be happy if I want to be healthy and if I want to do this in the long term then mm. I've got to save some of those energy stores um but yeah I think I think I'm getting there <laughs> it's I mean I imagine it's going to be a journey always right it's hard it's really really hard yeah yeah and I think like you say that there's like that element of like everyone is always doing that to a certain amount like mm. everyone is a bit different at work to who they are at home or they're different when they're meeting their parents versus their friends and it's kind of a natural part of of being a human so to have that added layer to it as well um I guess is just kind of yeah very tricky to navigate if you were talking to like or if there's someone listening who's like a 17 year old who's going through this or a 15 year old or even a, a 35 year old why limited to age um who's recognizing some of their own experience in what you're describing what advice would you give them I would say like search out community actively because I think that is the thing that has been the most amazing thing for me is like finding those connections with people who actually understand me and who um, love me for who I am and who I love for who they are Um, I would say like go gentle on yourself because I think for me I really because it is so amazing to have these answers it's so easy to get so obsessed with it and so kind of like it has to happen now and I need to find out now and I need to do the answers now and and so it became my whole life um which is obviously tiring it's it's a lot to process it's your whole life that you're going to look through again and I think it's kind of like take your time with it and 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 look after yourself like really consciously look after yourself um I think that's a big one that that I maybe should have done more of looking back. Um, 
And I think it's like, trust your gut as well. I think there's so much stuff in the media. There's a Panorama documentary last night that is, there's this kind of media narrative of like, oh, everyone's getting diagnosed nowadays because of all these people who are getting diagnosed because they were missed throughout childhood. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, hearing those conversations is obviously gonna gonna change how much you trust your own instinct because oh maybe I'm just doing it because I've seen it or maybe Mm. I'm not or you know I don't want to speak out about it because someone might think that I'm just jumping on this bandwagon and stuff and and I that that's kind of like the worst part that I think a lot of these these media companies don't realize when they're putting these stories out there it has a real true impact on people's like self-worth and like their life um so I think it's like you you know more than anyone your experience you you know if that's what's going on for you you you're the one living inside of your head and inside of your body um so like you're the expert on what's going on for you um and I think like that's okay to take at your own pace as well I think you know if you can resonate with some things that's going on but you don't feel ready to to seek out a diagnosis or to self-diagnose like you can that's why I kind of like the term neurodivergent because I think although it can be problematic to not to not specifically say which kind of neurodivergence someone is experiencing. Um, I think, you know, if you know that some of these things are going on for you, but you're not sure exactly where you fit in, or you're not sure exactly if you'd get a diagnosis for this or that, or but you just feel comfortable in that identity of like, I know that I function outside of the way that most people function. I know that I experience things in a different way to the way that most people experience things. I think there's some comfort in in that label as almost like a transition phase of like I'm, I'm working it out um, I think like we said kind of drawing on the experiences of, of other marginalised communities where you can't but like you know you don't wake up one day and then have to kind of label your sexuality right you know it's fluid you can explore that um, and I think the same thing could be said for understanding the way that your brain works that like you know you can you can go slow you can go steady you can just accept your differences without having to have an immediate answer right away um and no one else can like delegitimize that because you're the one you're the one that knows best i think what you're describing also like goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation where when you look at like the media narratives right now and how awful they are um there's there's a sense of like well you know, all these people jumping on the bandwagon as opposed to, wow, our system is really broken and has missed so many diagnoses, which is really the point. It's not yeah. the fact that people are jumping on a bandwagon. Yeah, I think I think it, yeah, how can you look at a group of people who have been let down by the system their whole lives and not think, oh my God, how do we live in a system that's let them down their whole lives and think, oh, you know, look at them now asking for help for something that they should have had help for. Like, it just doesn't make, it doesn't make sense at all. Um, I think, I think for, for them, the system to admit that they were wrong means that they have to admit that they were wrong, right? And they've had to let these people down. Um, But I think, you know, it's happening we we know it's happened where we're all here lived and like we're like living examples of well yeah I've gone this many years and like I think like my story we said it's pure potluck I could have gone another 20 years I could have gone another 50 years I could have gone my whole life and never and never kind of realized um and that's that's not my fault you know that was down to the the teachers that I had and the doctors that I had and um you know the adults that that it's their job to to care for me and to look after me in the system, just not having the proper training that they needed to be able to support me. Um, so yeah, I think hopefully we're starting to to realise more and to learn more and more and more people will get diagnosed younger and earlier in life. Um, but there's still always going to be that, like the lost generation that weren't missed, yeah. uh, that weren't picked up, that were missed, that, that you know, maybe they're finding out now, maybe they're finding out in 10 years, maybe they're finding out in 20 years, but they're still kind of there, hidden underneath the radar. And given the fact that the system is so broken and has missed so many people and room, and our world remains broken, right, for the most part, where the little things that we were talking about earlier feel like an exception as opposed to the norm to accommodate and actually be inclusive, in the face of that, it can feel really daunting of like, everything is broken and I want to make things better and I don't know how and for us for this podcast the premise is very much it's it's overwhelming to think about 
all the big sweeping changes we need and we do need them we do need systemic change but also all of us have a little bit of power and a little bit of agency so if there's someone listening who is going through this themselves whether they're neurodivergent whether there are people in their lives or they care about people who are neurodivergent and they want to start making our world a little bit better right a little bit of a more inclusive space a little bit more built to support them and they don't know where to start and it's just like a, what what is one little revolution one tiny thing that people can do i think just ask what somebody needs from you like i think if i am entering a space and someone goes is there anything that i can do to help is there anything that i can do to support you is there anything that i can do to make this you know more bearable for you or more enjoyable for you um it's such a a rare thing like it's such a simple thing for anybody in the world but it's such a rare thing that people think to do it because we're all kind of stuck in the way that things have always been done whereas if someone just asks the question you know is there anything that we can do to support you yeah can you make sure there's a quiet space when I get there can you send me an agenda ahead of time can you send me the questions ahead of the meeting or anything you know tiny things but that someone most likely will be more than willing to do for you because it's not really putting them out at all um but just wouldn't have known that you needed without asking so I think just kind of making a habit of is there anything that I can do to support you? Um, or do you, do you need any accommodations? Or yeah, just kind of just ask what people need from you. And I think taking the pressure off other people as well by doing that. Because I think like now what's quite tiring is that like every space that I enter, I feel like it also comes with the unpaid job role of like <laughs> neuroinclusion expert. So it's like, I don't know if I'm going to a conference, I'm having to say, is there a quiet space that I can go to? You know, what's the lighting like? Um, can you send me an agenda before? Do you have any photos of the space? All of these stuff that is like extra work on top of, I can't just turn up and, yeah. and do the jobs that I've kind of been hired to do. Um, whereas if someone kind of asks those things, it just takes a little bit of that, that yeah. onus off the person um, and makes life a little bit easier for everybody, I think. It's just such a human thing to do. Yeah, I think it's a thing as well. Like it's not, I think with so many of the things that make that make life better for neurodivergent folks is, it's not only the people that need it that benefit, everyone benefits. Like with the workplace examples, you know, clear communication. Okay, I need clear communication, but everyone would benefit from clear communication. And like, I need flexibility, but everyone would quite like to have flexibility. Um, it's called like the curb cut effect in the disability space. Um, and, you know, I think it is a huge thing of, you know, everything that I need yeah. is probably going to help more people than just me. Um, but but we're never going to realise those benefits if we don't help the people that need that need those those changes or that support. Um, but in the end, everyone will benefit. Make the world better for everyone yeah. just by asking. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's that's the thing. It, it is as with most things in this this world. It's just the tiniest yeah. the tiniest question, the tiniest little change. Um, just letting someone know that you like see them and you see their needs as well um, like if someone sends me an agenda ahead of something like I feel like I could cry <laughs> with gratitude because it's such a simple thing but for me not to have to ask for it um, yeah I think tiny changes like will make a huge difference thank you so much to Ellie for this wonderful nourishing conversation and thank you for listening to learn more about Ellie, where you can follow her, where you can join the Unmasked community, check out our show notes.